Father's Day, biggest holiday of the year. I'm, I've been excited about this and looking forward to it. I can't wait to see what my guys have planned today. I know there's all kinds of gifts and surprises. They would never let me down on a day as big and special as this. This is going to be awesome. I, 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 I just hang on a second. I, uh, this happens every Father's Day. I can't help it. Oh, my goodness. You know, there's one thing that we all have in common on this planet is that we're from somebody, right? We, we're all part of that. We, we, every person on the planet has a family tree. We have a genealogy. We have ancestors. There, there are people behind us, uh, and there will be, by God's grace, people in, in front of us. If we live long enough, you'll have descendants. You'll have children and grandchildren and nephews and nieces and, and people out there. Um, but a family tree, we began to talk about this last week, represents something more than just babies and bloodlines. They represent a mosaic. A mosaic. Remember what our definition of mosaic was? We talked about this last week. It is a picture or a decoration made up of diverse, multicolored, small pieces. Next week, I'm going to show you some actual mosaics from around the world that I think... Um, you'll kind of get an even better, a bigger picture of. One night I'm walking my little dog and I'm thinking about, God, are there, are there any parts of the Bible that I've overlooked? And I know there are, and there are things I haven't gotten to yet, but is there something I've disrespected or haven't really thought about? And uh, the next morning I got up and I'm sitting at the kitchen table and I'm, and I'm reading on you version, uh, which some of you are looking at right now, I'm sure. Uh, I read through the genealogy of Jesus and I thought, wow, is there anything there in Matthew? Is there, is that, can that be used? Could that even be used? And God just seemed to, to say, not only can it be used, it can be preached. Yeah, there, there are lessons there. And I began to see this, what in reality uh, is what a family tree is, is a picture uh, of a family made up of all these little individual pieces called ancestors or uh, descendants. And every birth uh, that takes place is another piece in that mosaic. God's putting together uh, his plan, and you are a part of that. So do you know what a family tree really tells us? It tells us that no one is an accident and that everybody is important. Now, I brought a picture. This was my dad uh, the, the year before I was born. Little did he know uh, the direction that his life was about to take, and it was going to change. This is my father-in-law. Um, I included both of them, uh, pictures of them at about the same age uh, when they were just getting started in Korea, one in World War II, um, because that began a whole generation of people that they will never get to meet. Um, they met our children, but then they both passed away. Uh, we had our first grandchild coming in December, and uh, they will not get to meet them until they get to heaven, but they are a part. There, there, is, uh, there is this continuing, this flow, this rhythm uh, to life, and I call that uh, a mosaic. Now, last week, we, we already saw how the hand of God is evident in the birth of Jesus. His family tree shows how century after century, uh, God was guiding the course so that Jesus could be both the Messiah for the Jews and the Savior for the world, for all of those of us who are, who are not Jews. And just like Jesus, we are not the result of human chance. 
but divine choice. God has sovereignly chosen our identity, my identity and your identity, to fit perfectly into his plan for the world, to make this beautiful, this beautiful picture. And, it, and, it's, and it's, it's breathtaking, really, to see the hand of God in the birth of Jesus. Um, in Matthew, we see the genealogy of Jesus, who, uh, you know, and, and the, uh, the, he presents him as this adopted son of, of Joseph. And because of this family tree, Jesus was legally the son of David, and he's qualified to be Messiah. And then in Luke, we see the genealogy through Mary, who was the actual mother of Jesus. And because of this branch of the family tree, Jesus is literally the son of David, and he's fully human. He's fully God. He's born of a virgin. He's the sinless Savior of the world. God brought it all together. Absolutely incredible. Now, I look at this list. Uh, most of the names on, on the list that you see in Matthew chapter 1 uh, are, uh, quite frankly, guys, like most history books, they're, they're people you've never heard of. And to us, they're just, they're unknowns. But when you look at it a little closer, it reveals this stunning piece of information. God had promised that he would give Messiah through the bloodline of Abraham. And he did just that. But when he opens up this, uh, in, in our house growing up, we had a cedar chest, and that's where special things went. I don't know if you had anything like that. When, when you open up this cedar chest uh, of Jesus' family, there's a lot of dirty laundry in there. There's some skeletons in this closet. And you would think, at least I would think, that the lineage of Jesus would be this roll call of super spiritual people, right? This is godly line, and maybe they'd even be wealthy. They would be respected. They would be nice, decent people. But honestly, when you read through this, some of it is more like a police lineup, the first thing that would have caught the attention of any Jew, especially of a rabbi, of a teacher, would have been the fact that women are included in this list. I know today that's probably not a big deal to us, but at that time, this would have been, it would range from highly unusual to extremely rare for a woman to be mentioned in any kind of a genealogy because a child was seen primarily as the product of the man not the woman. Remember that in Jewish national life, uh, women were not nearly as highly regarded then as they are now. Jesus did more to set women free uh, than anybody I can think of in history. Anybody. Uh, and at this time, a Jewish male would wake up every day and he would thank God for three things. Thank you that you did not make me a Gentile. Thank you that you did not make me a slave. And thank you that you did not make me a woman. <laughs> I mean, that's, that was the prayer. This list includes five women. Now, today we're just going to study three of these women because every one of their stories is just absolutely remarkable. And the fact that they even made it on this list is nothing short of a miracle. Have you ever heard of a black sheep? Black sheep is a derogatory term that refers to somebody in a family 
who doesn't live up to the family expectations or they shame the family in some way. Um, you know, you maybe are one. You think, yeah, that would be me, you know, or you are, you know, you know of what somebody pops into your mind. Oh, yeah, that's my weird cousin or my strange uncle that we, you know, there's somebody in your family that you kind of know they're the black sheep. How this got started is, in ancient times, there would be, you know, a, 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 what do you call it, a, a bunch of sheep get together? A flock. Thank you. Sometimes it just, you know, it, it just doesn't, the hard drive doesn't spin up. But uh, so there's, there's a flock of white sheep, and there's a, a black sheep. And they were considered less valuable because white sheep, you could dye their wool any color you wanted. A black sheep is really hard to dye. So they're worth, they were worth less. They didn't, they, you know, you couldn't get as much for them. Now, I, I found some, uh, you know, I just, that got me interested about black sheep in families. And uh, my family has some, and they're, you know, all sorts of, I started thinking about famous black sheep. Um, and, and here's just a few of them. There's a lot I pulled up. I, could, I just spent like uh, an hour doing this. But um, there's Al Gore III, and I'm not going to mention all Democrats, I promise. But um, <laughs> actually, I think they are. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Um, Algo III uh, faced multiple drug charges, was arrested once for doing 100 miles an hour in a Prius. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know you could do that. Ooh, yeah, that's a, that's a, there was a Billy Carter. Oh, we, I remember him. Um, uh, Pauline Bonaparte. Uh, Napoleon had the hardest time with this child. Uh, too many to Kennedys to list. I just thought, never mind. I'm just going to say Kennedy. Um, Roger Clinton. Uh, I mean, there it just goes on and on. I picked out two just to tell you a little bit about them because these are kind of interesting. Charles Adam, who was the son of the first vice president and our second president, John Adam, was kicked out of Harvard, Harvard for drinking and running naked through the campus. And this was way before that was invented. Um, John Adams, the president, his father called him. This is his dad, okay, said... He is a madman possessed by the devil. <laughs> what father's heart, you know. Um, another, Alice Roosevelt. This is President Theodore Roosevelt's rambunctious daughter, as, as the newspapers called her. She was known for drinking and partying. She was mentioned on the front page of the paper once, and President Roosevelt uh, was quickly surrounded by the press, and he, he quipped to the press, I can be president of the United States, or I can control Alice. I cannot possibly do both. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. Well, you know, you understand, right? Because some of you uh, are sitting with your black sheep, or you are one, and, and we, we, we kind of get that. Now, there's no doubt that the women that I'm going to talk about today, that we're going to study together, were definitely considered the black sheep of the family, um, of, especially of Abraham and David's family. And we find them in verse 2 and 3. Here's what this history that Matthew unfolds for us says. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. And this is usually where you're starting to nod off in your quiet time. Those of you who are reading through the Bible, and you think, this is the part I kind of skimmed through. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. 
Now, what's the problem with these women? Okay, this is church, and you can't make this up. The Bible, if you don't read the Bible, and, and you, you really like racy plots and juicy the story, I mean, this is this has got it here for you. Okay, these three women were guilty of the most serious kinds of sexual sin that anybody can commit. One committed the, the sin of incest. One committed the sin of fornication. And one committed the sin of adultery. And because church is PG-13 sometimes, that's why we always encourage you to take your kids to, to kid stuff because you're going to have a lot of questions on the way home to answer. Now, God, <laughs> in His grace, um, included all of these women in the family tree of Jesus. And He actually used them to produce the world's Savior and the Jewish Messiah. So what we're going to learn today is this. This is the key takeaway. No one no one, not me, not you, none of us are beyond God's supernatural grace. No one is beyond God's supernatural grace. Now, you may be convinced because of where you are in your life or what you are in your life or who you are in your life that there's no hope for you. I had moments like that where I believed uh, I'm too far gone. I'm on the other side of things. I really don't think God's going to be much interested in a guy like me. Uh, much less part of, you know, anything God wants to do in other people's lives. These three women and their testimonies are going to prove otherwise because some things that they tell us. First of all, God takes us where we are. The first woman that is mentioned in the family tree of Jesus would have brought a gasp from anyone knowing their history. They would have thought, don't, don't talk about her. You know, there's one family member you don't talk about so much. Matthew chapter 1 verse 3 says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram. Now again, you have to wonder, why is her name even brought up? We're not told who uh, the mother is. In 37 of these 42 names listed in this genealogy. But here, Matthew goes out of his way to name Tamar. And I'm almost embarrassed to tell you who she was. Her story is found in Genesis chapter 38. You can read it tonight. This chapter portrays one of the most perverse, explicit, sinful events in the Bible. You didn't even know it was in there. Hollywood loves these kind of storylines. It has everything, seduction and deception and even incest. Now, let me tell you what happened. In this period of history, wives were often chosen for their husbands by the parents. Um, so Judah, the patriarch of the tribe of Judah that's listed in verse 4, had a son named Ur. Easy to spell, easy to say, Ur. He chose a Canaanite girl by the name of Tamar uh, to be Earl's wife. It was a bad marriage uh, from the very start. She didn't believe in God. Uh, he was pretty wicked. This was a, a train wreck if they had trains waiting to happen. In fact, Ur was so evil that the Bible says the Lord just finally killed him. <laughs> That's kind of rare for God to say, you know what, I'm just done. Boop. You know, he, he just, he, okay, he killed Earl. And, uh, Ur, and this is where, and after that, uh, he was known as Later, and that's where we got the word, Later. 
I made that up. Uh, <laughs> this is where things start to get a little complicated. The law required that if a woman became a widow with no children, she was to be given to one of the husband's brothers. That's the way it worked. They didn't have life insurance. It just it kind of worked this way so that she would have then children to carry on the family name and, and preserve this, the inheritance. You know, it was, it was very uh, tribal, clannish family kind of a thing. One of her brothers-in-law, a man named Onan, <laughs> these are great names, uh, was given this duty and this responsibility, you know, uh, upon his brother's death. The problem was he refused to fulfill the law that was required. He wouldn't have relations with her. He wouldn't consummate the marriage. That's all we'll say about that. So God took his life. <laughs> this, is, this is all in here. So now Tamar is back to square one. Judah had a very young son named uh, Shelah. And he promised Tamar, when Shelah grows up, this is all a little, you know, uh, when he grows up, you can have him to be your husband. Uh, how weird would that be? Hey, you're going to be my husband one day. I don't know. Okay. Uh, so she could raise children in her husband's name and preserve the inheritance. That's what it's all about. The problem was, when it came time for all this to happen, Judah didn't really keep his promise. Uh, Shelah grows up, but Judah wouldn't give him to Tamar. Are you still with me? So she's frustrated. Uh, she's, you know, she doesn't want to be childless. Uh, she, she doesn't know God, so she's certainly not willing to wait on God's timing for the right husband. Tamar concocts this unbelievably evil scheme. Here's what she does. She disguises herself as a prostitute. Okay? She, uh, I was going to talk about what she would look like, but then I would make it, you know, that was wrong. Uh, so she puts a veil over her face, and she waits for Judah by the side of the road. <laughs> okay. Uh, and Judah falls for this deception himself. I thought, okay, him, he is willing to sleep with a prostitute. I mean, you know, it's, okay, this is just a crazy story. And now their story is marked with this despicable sexual sin because neither one is willing to walk with God or to wait for God. And they don't care what God's thinking, at, you know, what he thinks in this moment. And they have this, this event. So out of this relationship, twin sons were conceived. Okay? Their names were Perez and Zerah. Uh, Perez, who was born first, becomes one of the ancestors of Jesus. I bet many of you probably never knew that a woman impersonating a prostitute, deliberately committing the act of incest, was a part of the ancestry of Jesus. Black sheep. Don't bother looking for her redeeming qualities. You know, sometimes I look at a character and I think, yeah, there's probably something good later on. There's really not much more to be said uh, in, in the Old Testament uh, about Tamar. Uh, she's kind of a footnote in the early history of the Jewish people and their nation. Uh, but she and her son, Perez, joined Judah in the family tree of Jesus. Uh, that's just remarkable to me. So despite prostitution and incest and all this deception and all of this that goes on, how tangled and complicated it is, God's grace fell on all three of these people involved, these undeserving persons, and produces the Jewish Messiah, 
our Savior. No individual sinner is beyond God's supernatural grace. Not me, not you. God can take you where you are and fit you into his plan and his purpose. When I came to Christ, I knew it was going to be complicated. I knew there were so many relationships and activities and habits and patterns and lifestyle and family issues. I, I, I thought, oh, God, this is a bad. He says, just, just let me take you right where you are. I see, I know all that. Take you right where you are. Now, God does not approve of sin, and God hates evil. But God took them where they were, and even the evil that they did, and he used it for his ultimate plan and purpose. Would we think of Tamar and Judah as broken pieces with little beauty? It could not possibly fit in this breathtakingly beautiful masterpiece by this artist God. But that is just how awesome God's grace really is. Their sin was startling. It's just shocking. But God's grace is even more shocking. Remember, no person is beyond God's supernatural grace. Not me, not you. The second thing I see is God changes what we are. Because this next woman that we found... Uh, her story is in Joshua. Joshua chapter 2, uh, verse 1 says this, Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went. They came into the house of a harlot, whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. I guess the Holiday Inn was closed. I don't know. Everything's booked up. They're... They couldn't use the church's gym. The story of Rahab is found in Joshua. And you're not going to believe this, but the second woman that is mentioned here in the family branch, this is the history of Jesus' family. She's a piece of the mosaic. What does she do for a living? What is her trade? She would be a prostitute. She was what the one Bible scholar called the Madam of Jericho. And you heard it right. There is a woman of ill repute that's a part of the family tree of the Son of God. Outside of Matthew, every time Rahab is referred to in Scripture, she's referred to as Rahab the prostitute. I mean, how would you like, could you stop saying that part? I mean, it's on her card. I don't know. It's on the shingle out front of her house. I don't know. But whatever. It's just, you know how you get that? You get a reputation and you get something forever. People just tag you with that. Bummer, Rahab. Rahab the prostitute. Yeah, well, I'm not that anymore. I'm not, you know, for, forever. Okay. And incidentally, she's also a Canaanite. So what that means is the Canaanites were, they were these mortal enemies of Israel. Uh, they worshiped a false god named Baal. The Canaanites were to Israel what Al-Qaeda is to the United States of America. I mean, it's just, they were, it was just, so she's a prostitute and a Canaanite. And when we first encounter uh, Rahab, she's nothing more, I mean, she is an idolatress, she's pagan, she's an outcast, she's a Gentile woman 
who's making her living in, at that time, especially the most immoral way that a woman could think of to make a living, and the most memorable thing that she ever does in the Bible is tell a lie. <laughs> That's what she does. Okay, let me, let me tell you what happens uh, in her story. Uh, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, uh, the, the, the wilderness, the Israelites are finally ready to enter the promised land. Joshua sends out these spies to scout everything out in the city of Jericho. And it's really important that they not be discovered. Nobody figures out who they are. And they come upon this, this woman, Rahab, and they ask her, would you hide us in your house? And she, she does. She does just that. And when the enemy came to look for them, she lied about it. Hey, we're looking, yeah, we're looking for some stuff. No, what do they look like? No, hadn't seen those guys. I don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah, if, I, if, I, if they come by here, I'll let you know. But they're not here. Nobody's here. I mean, she, just, she lies about it. They go away. They go, oh, man, Rahab, thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, she bargains with them, knowing that the Israelites are about to destroy Jericho. Uh, she says, will you spare me and my family? And, and they, they agree to that. They say, put a, a scarlet thread in the window, uh, and when we come to your house, we won't destroy it. So you know that story, you know, and the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. Can you imagine this rubble, this just, just utter destruction, and it's just these rocks and dust and everything everywhere, and there's this one place standing, and Rahab's in there. Thanks, guys. One place that is spared. That's what happens. Because of God's amazing grace is evident again. What happened was that Rahab not only risks her life to protect God's people, she abandons the Canaanite gods for the one true God. She becomes not only a convert to the, to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, she also becomes a part of the family tree of Jesus. This professional prostitute, get this, are you ready? She becomes the great-great-grandmother of David, of King David. I mean, can you imagine at parties in the palace? Uh, you know, this is my mom, this is my grandmother. So what did you do? Now, let's move on. I want you to meet some of my uncles and cousins. I mean, this is, this is you, can, you can't make this up. I mean, this is, I love the Bible. Okay, this is what happened. God not only spared her physically, but God changed her spiritually. God took a pagan and a prostitute, a person as low on the moral scale as you can get, and as far away from God as you could possibly be, and he changes her heart and her life because of his grace. She is included in the family tree of God's own son. That just knocks me out. Why is that true? It's true because no individual sinner, not me, not you, are ever beyond God's supernatural grace. God can change what we are. God took a prostitute and he turns her into a princess. God took a woman going nowhere and he made her a branch in the family tree of Jesus. God took an un unbelieving prostitute and used her to save a nation. I love this. There's one other thing 
God does. He uses who we are. The last woman that we're going to study is the only one who probably needs no introduction. Whether you've read the Bible or you haven't, you kind of know about her. Um, For better or worse, she's one of the most famous women in history. But her sin is so shameful that there are places where her name's not even mentioned. It just talks about her and won't come out and say who it is. Her story is no better than the other two. And according to Samuel chapter 2, verse 11, here's what happened. She decides one day to go up on her roof of her house and take a bath in front of everybody. She gets up there. She's bathing. David, one of her neighbors, it's a really nice subdivision, he sees her. Whoa, she's so, he, he lusts after her. He sends his servants to bring her to what he, over to his house, to what he thought would be this secret one-night stand uh, that nobody's ever going to know about. It didn't say secret very long because she got pregnant. Her name is Bathsheba. And she really didn't have to go when the king asked her to come over. That was inappropriate. And she really didn't have to stay once she got there. That was inappropriate. She then becomes this, in an indirect way, an accomplice to her husband being murdered by David to cover up their sin. That's why often in the Bible you'll see she'll be referred to as the wife of Uriah. It's like Scripture still sees her as that. And then to add to her shame is this, I mean, check this out. To add to her shame, she marries the guy who murdered her husband with whom she had committed the sin of adultery. This story, this is as excusable and as repulsive as any in the Bible. I mean, at least these other two women, I mean, they didn't break up a marriage, prove unfaithful to their husbands, or then marry their husband's murderer. Somewhere, some way, somehow, God touched both David and Bathsheba. This is so beautiful. They repented of their sin. And even though their first baby died, Bathsheba conceived again and she bore a son named Solomon. Solomon becomes the next link in this divine chain to the Son of God. Think about what we've just seen. I mean, I would have expected the family tree of Jesus to be a hall of fame. And instead, in so many ways, it's a hall of shame. You have two prostitutes and an adulteress committing the sin of incest, fornication, and adultery. You would think there's no way they're going to produce a king, much less the Jewish Messiah, our Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. But they do. The truth of the matter, you know, is is if you had read all of these names and you did some study, you're going to find that in, in the family line, in the history of Jesus, there's a lot of black sheep. It's populated with Gentiles, fornicators, adulteresses, prostitutes, liars, wicked kings, and all an assortment of other sinners. 
it's starting to sound a lot like my family and yours. And you have to ask the question, why? Why would you even mention this? Matthew, why would you put that list right up front? God is silent for 400 years, and the first thing he does is he makes this list, and he includes all these shady characters, all these black sheep in it. I mean, why not just keep that secret? I was an adult. I found out things about my family and my ancestors at my dad's funeral and then at my mother's funeral. I'm a grown man. Things I never, I'm, I'm like, what? I mean, I'm like, my relatives, I don't know why they felt freed up, you know. Uh, maybe yours is like that too. So why not just hide it and let anybody know? I think the reason is simple. The pieces of the, the messianic mosaic, the branches in his family tree are not what's on display here. What is on display is the grace of God. What you see through all this this list is what God is doing for us. He's doing what we cannot do for ourselves. He's picking up all these little broken pieces and he's putting them together. He's taking these broken lives, these, these crushed lives, and he's making them whole. He's taking these, these broken hopes and dreams and he's putting them together into a new reality. Think about it. Every sexual barrier between male and female, every social barrier between rich and poor, every racial barrier between especially Jews and Gentiles, he broke it all down. It's the birth of Jesus. When this family tree comes in that moment, because of that birth, now every one of us can become a part of the mosaic. Last week, I told you about my great, 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 great grandfather, Jack O'Reilly. And how during the potato famine, he came over from Ireland to the U.S., there were already some Rileys living here in New York. He stayed with them for a while. I'm not sure how long, maybe a year or so. And then he moved to Virginia. He stayed there. And the idea was he would go to California to live. That's what he wanted to do. Well, he begins to travel across. He gets to Crockett County in West Tennessee. And he stops for the winter. He likes it so much. The farming is so good that he decides to stay. And so all of my ancestors were from West Tennessee. That's where I came from when I moved to Knoxville. I told you that part. I left out some details in in my family tree, my heritage from great, 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 great grandpa. One of my relatives found these written records And when I read it, it said, On this day, Jack O'Reilly arrived in Crockett County. And with him was his family, two wagons, and 12 slaves. 
when I read that, I was so devastated. I was so humiliated. I had always thought and I had always said, and I even told my children, the Rileys are always so broke. They're always so poor. That I know we didn't have anything. So, logically, I just figured we couldn't have afforded slaves. And so, with that logic, I distanced myself from that issue. In a racial reconciliation service in this room, standing on this spot with Frederick Brabson, who's one of our black pastors here in Knoxville, we... We had a service, and it was very powerful. Some of you here remember that. Did the same kind of thing on the Navajo Reservation and, and, and saw these, these beautiful people who began to wave handkerchiefs at me and, and to accept and to give forgiveness. But in a way, I'd always kind of distanced myself because I thought, well, it wasn't me directly. It wasn't my family. And then I found out that it was. I can't judge him. He was in his generation. And um, honestly, I don't know what to think about that. I don't know how to even think about that. And I went back and forth with whether it was even appropriate to share. And I thought, well, if God can share the history of Jesus, and he can include those things, then I can tell you just one And let me tell you, there's more on both sides. (laughs) My family is a doozy. And maybe yours is too. But when I think of things like that, I think, well, that disqualifies me. But when I was 19, God spoke truth into my heart. And he showed me his love. And I began to realize for the first time that his grace is bigger than your ancestry, than your heritage, your tradition, your background, your sin. His grace is deeper and stronger than anything you've ever done. And where you've come from, God loves you more. And he's shown us that today with just a simple genealogy. To think that he can take someone with a sordid background and a history and a past. And I know some of you have done things you're ashamed of. And you think of where you were and what you were and who you are. One of the things he's been teaching me, particularly over the last couple of years, is that when I'm in Christ, I have a new future now. I was destined for hell. Now, I'm going to heaven. But did you know that as you're changed, now your past is new too. You inherit the history of Jesus because you're in him now. God has transformed that shame into humility, humility, brokenness, and then even ministry. I can't tell you how the enemy has used this and other things in my past to beat me up. How many times before a worship service, he would say, how dare you get up and say a word when we both know who you are? 
I can't tell you how many Sunday nights and how many Monday mornings he would try to rake me over the coal. I've got a feeling that some of you live there. And the truth is, you are not worthy because of anything you've ever done. Don't you get it? We're all sinners. We're all broken. But when he redeems us, when he changes us, now it's because of Jesus that we see his grace can overcome anything I or anything you, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, whoever you are. God can take a broken, throwaway, dirty, filthy piece and use it to form this beautiful mosaic of his family that's held together by his grace and his love. And this is really the message of the family of Jesus. There is forgiveness and there's grace and there's beauty. And he longs to bring, he's ready right now to introduce glory and healing and a new fresh start. A brand new life for you. Leave the past. Leave it and embrace where and what and who you are in Christ. Would you stand? Let's pray. Father, uh, there was a time when I just skimmed through this part of the Bible because I thought it was just history and I've even wondered why you took up valuable space to include it and now I'm beginning to understand. Father, many of us are from wonderful families. Some of us are not sure where we've come from. We may never know. And some, like Jesus, we have some skeletons in the closet. There's some dirty laundry back there. And I thank you that today we're not bound by that. We're not bound by their past, by our ancestors, by tradition. We're not even bound by our own history. Because you have taken the pieces of our life. And you've put them into this beautiful mosaic. And we are a part of your masterpiece. Thank you for your love and your grace. And Father, I just want to pray this one thing. If there's anyone in this room or within the sound of my voice who've never understood or realized that and they've just lived quietly in shame and out of that shame we behave in some of the most bizarre unusual ways just like these three women in history we've acted out God today give us the grace to repent we repent of our sin and we come to Jesus and now we fit in this beautiful, beautiful art that you've made us into. Do that now. Perform your miracle of grace again in our lives for your glory. And in Jesus, the Messiah, our Savior's name. Amen.